0: This is Darren Davis, founder and senior leader of the Harbor Church in South Florida, and you are listening to the Harbor Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and others, visit us online at harborchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. to be able to share a word with you guys this morning. Pastor Darren and Wendy are actually in North Carolina. In fact, he's speaking at a church right now as we speak. So wherever you are, we say we love you and we miss you greatly. Um, But I'm happy to be here with you guys. I really feel like there is um, something beautiful in my heart that I want to share. And we were talking in the back. I'm like, it feels so cozy today. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because we got some kiddos in the room, but it just feels like we're one big family in a living room. And so if you're new here, I just want to invite you into that space. Um, I really want to share with you like you're in my house and we're just having a dialogue together. Sound good? And if you're here, I want to go ahead and apologize now. Uh, if you're new, especially, please come back next week. <laughs> this is my first time talking in almost a decade, so it's fine. Just please return. Um, well, I want to share a little bit, just for just a minute. I'm not trying to do a TED talk about myself just for a quick second. So you guys understand my personality, my makeup. It's going to give a little bit of insight into this word that I feel like the Lord's placed in my heart this morning. So I'm the kind of person that not sure if there's anyone else like this in the room. I love calculated risk, emphasis on the calculated, like so calculated that it doesn't feel like a risk at all. I'm like, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to do it. Let's do it. I'm, I'm also the kind of person that loves stability. So I don't like to be put in a lot of uncomfortable situations. I'm the, I'm the person that in the morning, I have my time with the Lord, I go into work, the staff can attest to this. And it's like game on for my checklist. I'm like eight to five. I'm lucky if I can even get up out of a seat and stand up for a quick second. It, it could be really bad. I'm not saying it's healthy, but I just wanted to be honest. And so one day I came in And I just, have you ever had those moments where you feel the presence of the Lord so thick? And I came in and I had my list of things to do, but I couldn't help but just be on my face and fervently just start praying. I felt like a spirit of intercession was on the inside of me and I just was on the floor and I felt the presence of the Lord so thick. Anyone ever had those moments? You're like, I can't do normal right now. I just gotta be with him. And so as much as I'd love to say, because I know what you're thinking, you're like, Savannah, you work at a church. She should have that all the time. I should, yes, free of conviction. But this morning I had it thick on the inside of me and I felt like the Lord whispered something to me. And he said, Savannah, this is the season for the bravery to believe for the bravery to believe. About two days later, Roe v. Wade was overturned, something I never ever thought I'd see in my lifetime. Come on, Jesus. Something I didn't ever think I would see and I felt the Lord again. Savannah, this is a time for the bravery to believe because the things that you didn't think were ever gonna be possible, that you never even could imagine up on your own, they're gonna happen quickly because of my spirit, if you trust me. He's on a mission. And so I want to talk a little bit about what it looks like to have the bravery to believe. I don't know if you've ever known these moments, but sometimes the process and the promise look very different. (laughs) You're like, wait, God, I thought it was supposed to look like this. And there's kind of a disillusionment that begins to sink in if we let it. And if we let our heart begin to disconnect from the father in those places, you know what I'm talking about? And so before I can talk about what it looks like to believe him, I want to talk, I want to hit on the bravery side of things, because there's a bravery in this hour that's required of us. The church is in a boring place. Christianity is in a boring place. We're actually called to live out of being able to see beyond what we can see with our natural eye. There's a spirit on the inside of us that is connected to his spirit. And so courage, it's funny, cause I looked up the antonym cause I'm kinda nerdy like that for courage and it's fear. I'm like, shocker. But I actually don't know if that's fully true. I know I'm going against a dictionary on this, but I really believe that courage is not ignoring a challenge or an obstacle. I really believe that it's acting in spite of that. And I cannot ask for the bravery to believe something unless there's something that is pushing an op- opposition of my belief right? You feel that resistance. There's like, okay, here's what I believe that the Lord has called me to. Your situations look nothing like that. It's pressing against what I'm called to press in for. And so courage sounds like it would be convenient until we get hit with conflict. There's something, I don't know about you, I'm not a typical girl. I mean, give me a good Hallmark movie at Christmas time. It's fine. I love it. But I would much rather almost any day watch Braveheart or The Patriot or Gladiator minus a couple of scenes. Yeah. Because there's something that happens on the inside of my heart when I see people that are against the odd begin to get birthed with this bravery that's supernatural. Like William Wallace on the front lines they are completely outnumbered. And he's speaking to his men as though, hey, I actually believe that we have the opportunity and the power to win. There's something that happens on the inside of our heart when we get stirred up with courage, but courage sounds like it'd be convenient until there's conflict. Let me give you a practical example. This is a low grade one. I want you to really imagine this. I know it's gonna be difficult, but imagine grocery prices are very high. Yes, hard to imagine. And gas prices are really high. And if you're like Juan or myself, we live on probably a hundred bucks a week for groceries and a date night combined, hashtag ministry, love it. And so have you ever had those moments where you're like, you, you bring your cash. We're trying to do the, the the Ramsey method where we bring our cash with us. and Anything beyond that, it's like, doesn't exist because <laughs> we don't want debt. That's yay, getting out of debt. Amen, amen. And so... You, those moments where you see you're in line, you're excited, you got your goods in your cart and you're like, this is it, I'm ready to check out, I got my cash. And then you see that person in the cash register line that's like behind you in Walmart, he's doing a self-checkout and he's counting $1, $2, $3. You see him and you're like, ah. Oh. And God's like, hey, see that kid over there? Yeah, he, he actually needs you right now. And I want you to give him over what you have for yourself. I don't know if you've ever been in those moments. You start to look at his grocery cart and you're like evaluating it. You're like, there's beef in there. There's chicken, like 50, 75. You start counting it up in your head and like, not me, God, (laughs) not today. Because it requires belief, right? It requires that I'm actually gonna have enough, not even just for myself, but to give away and that the Lord's got me at the end of the day. We believe It sounds like it'd be convenient to have courage in those moments until there's conflict. Let me give you another example. You're at work nine to five. I don't know if this might date me a little bit. It's fine, I'm getting older now, I'm embracing it. Um, But you've watched the finger of God and you're like, my heart, Jesus is set on fire for a nation. You begin to feel him stirring something on the inside of you. You're like, yes, God, I wanna save people, but I'm working a nine to five. And I feel so limited. And you're leaving work and you're, ex- you're exhausted because you're working a nine to five. You don't feel like there's a lot of grace on it. You've got a family to provide for, five o'clock kicks, and you're like, I'm out. I'm done, God, I'm clocking out. And you see bad attitude, Barbara in the parking lot. She's crabby and you know her really well because she never agrees with anything you say. In fact, there's part of you that even though you know you shouldn't, you loathe her just a little bit. Enough to be godly, Right? And so God says, hey, listen, I'm gonna give you a download about Barbara. She's got depression. She's got something going on with her family. And you're looking at your clock. You're like, I need to get home. And the last thing I wanna do is begin to give out to that woman. And you're like, someone else. <laughs> That's someone else's assignment. And God, like, no, it's yours. There is no one else. It's your assignment. There are these conflicts. Those are, those are lighter conflicts. I'm not trying to belittle them, they're elementary conflicts because there's far greater things that happen in our life that wanna deter us from believing who he is. And I love those moments for momentary motivation, but God actually wants something deeper. I mentioned this a couple weeks back. He wants inward transformation. He wants our likeness to equal his. It already is existent. We have it available. It's nothing that we have to work for or strive for. We just have to say, God, I'm here. And so we heard it from Johnny Rios, Proverbs 28.1. It says, the wicked flee when no one pursues them, but the righteous are as bold as lions. The wicked flee, they have no foundation to stand on. They have no promise, no word, no nothing. Anything can incite fear on the inside of their heart, but we have the ability to be on this firm foundation, right? Come on, this is gospel. Courage is not the opposite of fear. It is acting in spite of it. But I truly believe that there is this deep well that we have the ability to pull from in moments that require courage. Now, don't get me wrong. I totally believe that we have the ability to receive supernatural grace. You know, those moments where you couldn't have earned it. You couldn't have worked hard enough for it. It just comes on you. And you feel the presence of God thick. And you're like, I have the courage to see something happen. There are those moments for sure. But there's this history with God that we get to experience. And so I wanna dive into a little, a little Bible story that many of you knew, in fact, may know. Um, I thought I knew it. And then I started digging into some of the details and I'm like, this story is hilarious. Don't know if I could have done it. But you, you obviously know the story of Moses, right? He was a man that was sent into the palace. He left the palace because he committed something wrong killed a man, and then God sends him back to the very place that he ran away from to believe that there'd be enough, the ability to bring freedom to a nation, right? We know that story. And so Moses, we know the deal, 40 years in a, in the, a wasteland with people that are grumbling. You know, you see it and you're like, gosh, those people are so horrible. And then God's like, that's us every day. <laughs> but we know that story. And then next came the story of Joshua, right? This this um. Predecessors, is that the right word I'm looking for? This person that was underneath Moses that was called to bring people into the promised land and divide the tribes up. And it's just glory upon glory. Every war is won. But then there's something that happens after that that I find is so unique. And so I just pray that as we hop into this, that your spirits would be sensitive to the words that I'm saying. And any place in our heart that has unbelief or the inability to see, I ask that God would meet us in this place. So if you have your Bibles with me, turn to Judges 2, 10 through 13. At this point, Joshua was done, dead, gone. And those that had experienced this glorious life with the Lord had passed away as well. And so it says here in verse 10, it says, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not know the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done. I don't know what happened in the parenting style between Joshua and that next generation, but there was a massive lapse in the ability to teach that generation what it looks like to steward the stories and the history with the Lord. And how many of you know that if we lose that, we start to lose our compass. And so it says, there was a generation who did not know God. Know comes from their Hebrew word, yada. I might, I'm pronouncing that, I think, a little wrong. Give me some grace. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. I'm so happy you're here. I'm <laughs> so happy. Um, but this word, yada, did not know the Lord, it implies this personal and experiential knowledge. It was not just intellectual acquaintance, it was actually a journey. They had a history the previous generation had a history with the lord where they knew him i believe that brave brave belief is birthed out of a deep intimacy with the lord you cannot believe that in which you do not trust and it is not enough in our own ability to know him with our heads because when the rubber meets the road he wants us our hearts to begin to be entangled with his. When we know him, we know his nature. We do not question it. No matter the situations that arise, though there is grace to find him in the mystery. It's so easy. I think I was listening to that word by Stephanie Gretzinger, which was beautiful and amazing. But it is so easy to become cynical to become this critic of what he does or does not do and miss his very nature. Few take time to know this man. And so we look in verse 11, it says the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the image of Baal, they abandoned the Lord and the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. See, they were in this time where there was kind of this disconnect that kicked in and all of a sudden, slowly but surely like leaven, they started letting in these other idols. They started to marry the culture of this world. And there was promiscuity in that place. Sensuality crept in in ways that were pretty wicked. If you read through this chapter, they started to become disconnected Idols don't always look like idols, especially in the church. And owning things is not bad, but being owned by things is another story. God wants to own our hearts at the end of the day. And so Israelites let little things into their culture that began to own them. And what started off with probably one or two very, very small non-important choices or so they felt actually changed the course for their generation. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to happen in our world and I see glimpses of that now, but we serve a God who's amazingly powerful, amen? So you see this cycle with the Israelites and I'm giving a big pre-story so that you guys can understand what's happening. There's this cycle of, we don't know God. (laughs) We need to know something else. And then they know that's something else and it doesn't satisfy. And then there was a running back to the father saying, God, please help me, what have we done? We've heard about you. Like we know that you move. And you see this constant cycle in Judges over and over again of the same story, insert different characters repeating itself. And so the people in that time, in the time of Gideon, they were in oppression for seven years. And I want you to think about this because I don't think we really humanize the Bible all that often, right? It's like chapter one says this and chapter two says this and insert next week, this is what happens next. And it's like, no, this is years. We were in COVID for a year and a half, maybe two. Like that's a long time and it felt rough and it still kind of feels rough sometimes, but they were in captivity for seven years they were hiding up in the clefts of this mountain every single thing that they put their hands to when they put their hands to the plow when they'd begin to to want to harvest they'd plant items they had animals and livestock it would get pillaged seven years of starvation and anguish and they were finding themselves in this place that was so reactionary to the enemy (laughs) I love the parallel sometimes because I think same, like these people in Christianity, sometimes we live so reactionary to the works of the enemy that we miss living in obedience to the Father. And we find ourselves on this cycle of exhaustion, no grace. They were hiding. It was an, in, an indication that there was a measure of unbelief. And so this is when Gideon's introduced. And Gideon is this man of very little, no importance. So God, right? (laughs) Thinks he has nothing to offer the world. And it says this, if you turn with me, chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to, I'm going to pronounce, mispronounce all these names, Joash of Abizarite. Sounds like a rap song. Um, where the son of Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. I love that, threshing wheat in the wine press. There's something about fear and unbelief that allows us or causes us to do the wrong thing in the wrong place. But when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you. They believed that this was like a Christophany, like an actual... Um, actual the Lord actually walking in not just an angel, of the Lord but he said this he said the Lord is with you mighty warrior can you imagine Gideon seven years of oppression, he's like who are you <laughs> what do you mean the Lord is with me mighty warrior, he begins to identify himself, I, I think that when there's seasons where belief is required the Lord has this uncanny way of reintroducing us to ourself And then in return, he reintroduces us to him. And there's something about, there's something about what we truly believe that for some reason manifests or rises to the surface in those places where those reintroductions are made. And so you see Gideon here in verse 13, he says, pardon me, Lord. He replied, but if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? Where are all of his wonders that our ancestors talked about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and he's given us into the hand of Midian. See, he doesn't realize that it was his fault the whole time, not literally his, but his people. They let little things in. And then all of a sudden, when, when the moment comes, he's like, no, it's God's fault. Where is he? Sound familiar? I'm convinced that if I could summarize and kind of shrink down all things to two questions, it would be this. It'd be, who am I and who are you? If we don't know the answer to the who are you part, then we're never going to know the who am I part. And if there's something on the inside of us that despises the who am I part, then there's always going to be a part of us that has a distorted view of the who are you part. And the Lord turned to him and said in verse 14. I love this. It's kind of cheeky if you're asking me. It says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And so you see Gideon pleading with this angel. It says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, I'm the weakest clan and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm at the bottom of the totem pole, God. How can I ever shift anything in this world? And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I love when God says these things to you because oftentimes it's because they're gonna be your lifeline. <laughs> I'm gonna be with you. It's gonna, he says that to be a reminder in the moments to come that he's never left. God says this to reinforce the commission. And he said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, in verse 17, then show me the sign and speak to me uh, and sign that it is you and speak with me. Please do not depart until I come and I bring you a present, he said. And he said, I will return to you. Then Gideon made this sacrifice of meat and unleavened bread. I love this. We all know that meat sacrifices is what is to come through the body of Jesus. And unleavened bread is that untarnished innocence. There's nothing in it but what it is. And then Gideon had this aha moment. He's like, oh my goodness, this is the Lord. And the Lord said to him, peace be with you. Do not fear, you're not gonna die, which means you're probably gonna think you're gonna die. (laughs) Soon, watch out. And so Gideon built this altar and he called it the Lord is peace. And it was a prophetic word for what God was going to do on the inside of his life. See, Gideon was reintroduced to who he was and who God is. And he received a word from the Lord. And trust me, those words will oftentimes come with testing. And so I love this part. It was really quick. It, It says, if you follow me in verse 25, I've got a lot of scripture and a little bit of time. But it says, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old. I love this. And this angel of the Lord, he asked to him to pull down the altar of the gods of that land. And ironically enough, it was Gideon's father who had built that altar in the first place. And the reason why I love this, I love the symbolism for this. The angel tells him to take that bull, to tear down the idol of Baal and to make a new sacrifice to the God of their ancestors. The symbolism here that I think is really funny and such a small thing, but I loved how it said, you know, they were in opposition, oppression for seven years. This bull was seven years old. The very thing that was birthed seven years ago out of a place of of oppression was the very thing that the Lord asked him to lay on the altar as a sacrifice before God and prophetically and tangibly put to death. Seven years. It was gonna be no more. The Lord was trying to show him, hey, that thing that was built that ruined a generation, no, I want you to lay that thing down on the altar publicly. And so Gideon he starts to get a little brave, but not quite brave enough. Have you ever had those moments with the Lord where you're like, okay, God, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> so he, he says, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it at night. I'm going to sneak out. And maybe nobody will know it's me. And he, with a couple of men, he starts to tear down the idol. He lays it down. He makes a sacrifice. And the next morning, there's a complete uproar. Can you imagine? Everyone in the village is mad at you because you took down something that felt so sacred to them. And so this is his very first obstacle with his promise. The people are looking at him and they're saying, please, who did this? Whoever did this deserves death. Gideon's father probably knowing it might've been Gideon. I don't know, maybe something slipped. He says, hey, listen, Baal, Baal can defend himself. We're gonna let this one go. So Gideon is spared. And I don't know if you've ever had those moments with the Lord where the Lord gives you an assignment and you just kind of tiptoe it and you pass and it goes smoothly and you like start to get that confidence, you know? You're like, yeah, look at me, I tore that down. And so he starts to get brave. He starts to actually believe just a smidge, this word of the Lord that he had placed on him that he was gonna save a people. And all of a sudden, Gideon goes from a no-name, nobody man to a mighty warrior that is calling for men in the East, 32,000 men arrive because they're finally gonna put an end to this. They're like, this is the time guys, we've been bullied for seven years and the Lord gave me a promise and it's time to activate it. Can you imagine what he was probably thinking? He never probably thought he could get 10 men to follow him, let alone 32 and for a moment he was like, this is the dream. Have you ever had those times with the Lord where you think you're walking in the fulfillment of it, but the story isn't over? And so he starts to get confident. Not that it's a bad thing. But the Lord's like, hey, Gideon. Hey, bud. That's how God talks to me. He says sis sometimes. That's my nickname in my house. Hey, sis. Um, He says, hey, buddy. Your army's really big still not big enough technically by numbers sake to defeat the other enemy, but good job. It's a little too big, actually. (laughs) It's a little too big because what's gonna happen is, because I know the hearts of man, I know that when you guys defeat this army, you're gonna think it's you. And I want you to know it's me, that I'm the one who's had you the whole time. And so the Lord speaks to Gideon and he says, hey, I want you to tell any men, any of the men in this room that are afraid, that they can go home. And I I don't know, I I can can kind of imagine what this feels like as a leader. You're in a space, you're like, I can't leave it. Like, I'm gonna give this commission, maybe like five to 10 people, God, are gonna leave. And they were still scared because they didn't have the numbers. And so 22,000 of those 32,000 picked up their bags and left. Once again, I want you guys to humanize this for a second. We don't think about what would be going on in Gideon's mind because we think, well, he had a word of the Lord. Wasn't that enough? But 22,000 of the people that he thought was a part of his promise got up, packed their bags, and left. And I'm sure that there was an opportunity in that moment to say, you know what? <laughs> I miss the voice of God. Like, let's go ahead and pack up. I'm okay with a couple more years of oppression because I'd rather that than there be manslaughter. But he doesn't. He probably puts on his brave boots. He's like, okay, I can do this. I had a word of the Lord. At least I have 10,000. So you have to pull from this well sometimes. A well of belief because that courage is gonna be tested. Tested. I'm gonna summarize a a couple verses here, but then there's this beautiful next part. Gideon's probably mustered up enough strength and he's like, okay, I got it, 10,000 people, I can do it. And then the Lord's like, hey, bud, it's me again. 10,000 is still too much. Can't take it with you. I got you, but you can't take it with you. And he asks. For the men that are left in his army to go down to this river and begin drinking, they have to go low. They're like on hands and knees. And the Lord says, whoever drinks like dogs gets to stay. (laughs) I love this. Actually, as a leader, this makes me laugh because the thought of ever telling my staff team, like staff team, hey, guys, come on. Let's go down to the river on our hands and knees and drink like dogs. Like, no way, dude, they're gone. Love you guys but y'all would probably be gone. There was a lowliness, there was this humility, and yet there was this ability for these last 300. I don't know if they were smart or they were stupid, but, but they did it. And they got down on hands and knees and it's 300 left. Verse seven, and the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands and let all the other men go home. And so the people took, the remaining men took the provisions and their hands, their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and he retained only 300. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. (laughs) There he was, like on this mountaintop. I can imagine he's probably looking down. He sees thousands upon thousands of people And now he's only left with 300. And I can't imagine the the sinking feeling in his gut to know this is what's left. Like this is it, this is all that's left. As a leader, he was probably feeling alone. He probably felt unsupported, unbelieved in at this point. His God dream felt like it was gone. And to make things even worse, God says to him again, he says, hey, bud, it's me again. It's God. I know those first ideas you probably thought were pretty crazy, and I get it. Things have kind of looked like they're scaling back a little bit. But I want you to go into the enemy's camp, and I want you to hear what they're saying about you. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a bully ring before, but typically it's mean and nasty. And if he was already feeling bad, I'm sure that that's probably the last place that he'd want to (laughs) be. let alone the risk of actually being caught in that place. But the reason why the Lord told him to do that is because oftentimes the enemy will know more about you than you actually do. The enemy knows who you are. He knows what you're called to do. He doesn't always know the full plan, but he knows he wants to stop you. And so Gideon sneaks down into this tent, this place, and he hears some of the soldiers talking about this beautiful prophetic dream. And there was something about that moment with Gideon where all of a sudden, like the dream that was on his heart began to be activated by hearing the dream of the enemy. He knew that this dream was a prophetic picture that he was gonna make it out and he was gonna win. And so instead of being discouraged in that place, he actually runs back and tells his men, guys, you wanna believe what I heard? They know the enemy's gonna lose. And so he starts to feel this excitement, this faith, because when there's a God dream in your heart that begins to get activated, there's things along the way that just confirm it. Even though you cannot see, your spirit knows the mission that the Lord's called you to. And so they have this dream, he's so excited. He's like, we're gonna go to the enemy enemy's camp and we're gonna destroy them. And it's funny, I think the picture's funny because they're on this mountaintop, right? They're looking down. And Gideon tells his men, he's like, let's pull up our pots and pans. Let's pull up our lights. We're going to light torches. We're going to yell for God and for Gideon. Like, you're going to (laughs) die. The enemy would have known you're coming. But instead of that, their ability to stand even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of fear, actually caused confusion in the camp of the enemy. And so what happened instead of 300, it was like the angels of heaven were there in the midst because there was confusion in the camp. And the enemy that Gideon was going to to kill actually ended up killing each other. (laughs) God loves you. He can use you. He doesn't need you. But we get to be with him. We get the opportunity to dream with him. so I'm going to spoiler alert (laughs) really quickly. He wins this battle and he wins several others. And there's this celebration that begins to happen in the hearts of people. But because we're human, people looked back at Gideon and they're like, you are going to save us again. And I want you to rule over us and you and your son. In verse 22, chapter eight, it says, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. You and your son and your grandson alike, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, no, I will not rule over you. They're going back, right? They're going back to that same place. Give us someone. We need someone who looks like God but isn't truly God that we can call and we can look on and we can say, yes, I feel safe with you. And Gideon's like, no, you're not getting it still. I will not rule over you, nor my son, but the Lord will rule over you. He, in that moment, was directing people back to the Father. And there's a couple messes that happened along the way. For the sake of this message, I'm, I'm gonna hold off on telling all of them, but essentially Gideon ends up getting all this gold from the people, they make kind of this monument out of it and let's just say things kind of spun back to the way that they were, but it says this in chapter eight. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. I'll say that a different way, the land had peace. See, the beautiful thing about God giving us God dreams is that we kind of Americanize this concept, but at the end of the day, it actually isn't for you. God gives you a dream in your heart and a promise to be accomplished because it's actually for a generation and for a people to watch you begin to burn for him. Gideon built an altar in the very beginning, right? You remember this? He called it the Lord is peace. In what out of young love started off as a sacrifice, the Lord actually began to be a monument for his promise. Full circle, right? We have these full circle moments with the Lord. So just to recap a little bit here, Gideon first had to believe what the Lord said about him. Next, he was reintroduced to the father he had to have this yada moment, right? This moment that he wasn't any longer looking for intellectual acquaintance. He had this moment that was gripped. It gripped his heart, those moments with the Lord, you know, that you can look back on him. Next, he had to believe the call of God on his life, even unto testing. He had to believe that with God, he actually had the ability to see it through. And next, he had to take those who were called with him because it wasn't enough just for him to go by himself. And it may not have been enough to take 32,000 with him, but the ones that were hungry, the ones that wanted to see it through showed up. God doesn't need a lot of people. He doesn't. It took 12 people to completely revolutionize the world. It took 12 people that believed unto death that God was gospel. He doesn't need a lot, but he needs everything. He needs you to burn for him. It wasn't enough, but he had to take those with him that would be willing to go. I wanna say this, this is just a, a freebie. It's okay if people don't come with you. In our humanity and in our desire to be loved and approved, we want people to celebrate us and give us high fives and pat on the backs when we step out to do something that God asked us to do, but sometimes it doesn't end up like that. Sometimes it is the pure ability to show up regardless, to make a mark. If you look back on history, almost every single person that actually lived a radical life, even those that were um, revivalists, if you look back on revivalist history, it took one person to burn. There is something contagious that happens in the heart of people when you show up and you show up bravely, willing to put your heart and your ego on the line. And speaking of ego, he had to keep his heart pure before the Lord, directing those that saw him as the most important part of the story back to the author. And lastly, And most importantly, his life was not just for himself, but rather it was for a nation. Belief requires sometimes great bravery, especially in seasons where there's been great disappointment. He knows exactly where you are. There's not a place that you've been that he has not walked right there beside you. And sometimes that disappointment sneaks in and Gideon had an opportunity in his life to say, you know what, I'm gonna pack up my bags and I'm gonna go home. You have that choice. Either I feel like the choice either kind of goes two ways. Whatever decisions we make are gonna lead us to him or from him. Only you can make that choice. He can't make that choice for you, but he's there. Every single second, he's there. Bill Johnson said this quote, and I love it. It says, one of the side effects of losing intimacy with God is that at some point we stop doing ministry, and you can insert that for whatever you want. We stop doing blank out of imagination and we begin to do it out of memory. Because there's a lie that creeps in that the God that I once knew, that's all I'm gonna get. (laughs) We've got a belief problem in the church. Can you imagine showing up with your worship on a Sunday, your oil so filled, knowing that you are gonna seek God in the same way that you do in your car by yourself? Can you imagine actually showing up to a service believing that your presence in that room was gonna actually help shift something in the atmosphere. We've got a belief problem in the church. We stop believing him. Idols are not always idols like we would think that they are. Sometimes those disappointments that begin to come up, they can jade our heart to not even recognize him in a room. God wants our hearts to be soft for him. Your promise is important. I know I said the bravery to believe. At the end of the day, I don't think it's the bravery just to believe about a situation or a moment that that's important. I think it's the ability to believe him. just to believe him for who he is. That has to be enough. So oftentimes it's not enough. I wanna read some statistics that to me prove we have a belief problem in the United States. 52 million people right now have experienced severe mental illness in the United States after 2020. That represents one in five adults. 38% of adults have experienced extreme depression. 59 million people, mostly between the ages of 12 and 18, have already experienced the usage of illegal drugs and misuse of prescription pills. 138 million kids will use drugs in their lifetime. That's 50% of the young adults that are existent today. That's a high number. There's been a a need that hasn't been met in the hearts of people because we've got an intimacy problem. We don't know him. It's not enough. It hasn't felt like it's enough. And so we try to find these other things. The increased availability to online sexual content has increased 60% since 2020, leading to new cases of addiction, Mobile use, internet. 45,000 people have died from gun related injuries, and out of that 45,000, half of those were because of suicides. We've got a belief problem. If that doesn't grip you and that doesn't wake you up, then we need to be on our face asking for Jesus to actually touch a nation. You have to believe that your life actually matters for something. You gotta have the bravery to pick yourself up and dust off (laughs) past seasons of disappointment where you felt like he he didn't see you or he missed you. And you have to know that there's actually a bigger story that he's writing, but that's either gonna lead you to him or from him. And God wants you to know him intimately. He's been there the whole time. I wanna share just a quick little bit of Juan and I's story so that you can know that for me, I'm not speaking out of this from theory, I'm speaking out of it from experience. God called Juan and I to South Florida two years ago. He made it very clear. We were at an amazing successful church called Legacy Nashville. I was on staff full time, but the Lord called me out and I could feel him saying, hey, it's time to come home. And, um, We got this word, this prophet, he spoke to us and he said, the Lord is calling me to move back to an international space where you're a hop, skip and a jump away from South America. And Juan and I just felt like it's time to go. We gotta go. And there was no space for us to be on staff here, that's for sure, there was nothing. We just came with a hunger to come home to see South Florida change for Jesus. And that was tested because we had no income. We went from living, I mean, being very successful financially because Juan was in the insurance industry to being completely broke from a dream. I'm not saying that's responsible, but we were living with very little to no income. I was in the process of applying for jobs. I was in the process of applying for this amazing job with four kids. Juan and I inherited this beautiful youth group of 35 kids. And then four months later, COVID hit. And all of the dreams that I had to see things change and move were completely ripped from me. Juan and I—we were eating jalapeno peppers and threatening to shave our hair to capture kids in an online space. It was incredibly difficult, and if I'm being really honest, I felt like a loser. So we get this job, and the guy had also prophesied about a, about us having a child in the fall, and. You know, he said, I never prophesy about dates, mates and babies. It's like a golden rule. But he's like, I feel like you guys are gonna have a kid sometime in the fall, I don't know. when." And so we step in and we're just kind of slumming it. The youth is dissipating because it was hard to keep any kind of online attention at that point. So I was like, okay, God, I let it go. I love these kids. I love the kids, but I'll let it go. And so I worked four kids and the Lord I I didn't even know I was there but the Lord put me underneath two incredible men that taught me about the heart of Jesus in a way that I had never known before and I was well above my pay grade I was working with two of the VPs there trying to keep the whole thing afloat and it was pretty stretching and I was like God why am I here He's like, just be, just rest. And so I started to fall in love with this job. I started to fall in love with foster kids and adoptive kids. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe this is what you're doing. Like, this is what, do and I feel like it's a part of our life. We don't know when. But I started to have a heart for the city for these kids. And God says, hey, hey, sis, <laughs> it's time to pack up your bags. Just as I was getting comfortable and I loved it, I felt cushy. And he says, it's time to come home to the harbor. And I was like, oh no, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Because I knew what I was going to be stepping into was going to be well above what I could bite off or chew. And I didn't know if I had it with me, but he gave me a very, very clear word that was far greater than just the harbor. It was actually for what he's going to do in South Florida And I won't share all of it, but it was that people are gonna come together to build something that is far greater than one entity or one church. It's about the gospel invading a city and it looks like something. So we have this dream and I come back and it's the moment we got here, we started to hit all the stuff that's been happening with our building. And for those of you who do not know, I won't bore you with the details, but there was a massive fight for this campus. And so I come in one month completely turned upside down. I forget my job duty. I'm like, I'm like looking into files and trying to keep the thing afloat and the whole dream looks like it's gonna die. And I'm like, God, I don't know what's happening. You did you? I literally told him, I said, God, I think you brought me here to die. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Everything, every dream that I hoped for to be a part of this family and to see something move felt like it was dwindling away. And in the midst of that in March, actually February on Valentine's day. Juan and I found out that we were pregnant. And for a moment, it felt like the dream was gonna come back. Cause at this point I was like, I don't need ministry. I just wanna be a mom. That's, that was my heart. I was like, I wanna be a mom to a city. And all the dreams that I hid because Juan and I haven't been pregnant in seven years, they started to bubble up to the surface and I started to fall in love. And a couple months later, I had a dream that was very dark. And it was like exact dates of me miscarrying. That was the dream. Between the burn and between Easter. Burn, this time where you're supposed to love God and worship him and be with him. And I started to feel pain. real I tried to talk it away it was like I'm very good like yay God life yay and I went in in, and they told me they're like you don't have a heartbeat and again I had to come and I said I had to say in my heart God am I going to let this pull me from you or am I going to let it move me to you I want you to stand up with me in the room And for those of you who have Harbor kids, I wanna go ahead and dismiss you now. You guys can come back with your kiddos, but I, I wanna invite those who are remaining in the room. Through this time, I got to experience a love unlike I'd ever known. And even in the midst of my personal greatest pain to date, though the past couple of years have felt painful, I found him. And I can say that that is enough. That is enough. And if my life never equates to anything more than being a good steward of loving him and others well, then I feel like I've done a great job. As a sister, let me tell you that it's not enough to know him in here or to live out of past experiences back there. He wants you to burn for him. He wants you to burn for him and there's gonna be things that are gonna test that love. And it's not because he's some kind of cruel God, it's just the way the world works I think sometimes. So in nature, there's gonna be things that come against that. But I promise you that if any time in history is the time, it's now. Now is the time to keep your oil afloat. Because when the time comes and the opposition hits, it's not gonna be enough to live off of the couple drops you experienced three years ago. He needs you now. And so I'm gonna invite our ushers Our First Impressions team, we're gonna pass out communion this morning because as I was prepping this word for the bravery to believe, I really believe that the bravery actually comes when we encounter him and we remember what he's done. For those of you who may not know, there is a God named Jesus who came and he died for you. And he spilt his blood and his body as a sacrifice, not for you to live a good, comfy Christian life, but to live a radical life of truly believing the gospel as truth. And so I wanna pray over this communion. And there's gonna be kids running around because we're doing things family style, that's okay. but I want you to become reacquainted with this man named Jesus. He's so good. If you do not know him, he is so good. And his love for you is endless. And he knows the story that you've walked out. (laughs) He knows every chapter of it, but it's not done yet. It's not done yet, church. So I think everyone's getting it. Does everyone have it? So I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray over the elements and I want you to have a moment, a personal moment with a living savior who is incredibly crazy about you. He loves you. And I want you to have a moment for that and... And once I'm done, I'm gonna invite the band to just play and worship behind me. And for those of you who just wanna stay and meet him again, just a little bit longer, I'm gonna invite you into a time to just hang up front. For those of you who may be done after this, after I pray, you guys can feel free to go home. We love you. Like I said, please come back next week. But we wanna invite you into a ministry time. So God, we just thank you right now for your body. (laughs) this body that was broken, this blood that was spilled so that I could not have an intellectual acquaintance with you, but I could have a spiritual experience with you that I have access to at all times. God, we thank you right now for your body that was broken. We thank you for your blood that was spilled. What a love is this that you would lay down your life for me, not so I can live numbing myself in boredom, but so I can experience the imagination of what it looks like to be one with you. God, I thank you for your forgiveness, that when that blood was spilled and that body was broken, it, it clears away any past that I think I experienced, it clears away any shame that I have the opportunity to live under sometimes with life, And so we receive that too in this moment. And I feel this specifically, if any of those statistics that I read is something that you're dealing with or you're walking out, he's with you in the midst of it. God, I pray that we would realize the cost of love and the inheritance that comes with it. You guys can go ahead and take that if you haven't already. But I just invite you into a space to begin to know Him again as you take His body and remember what it means in His blood. Thanks for tuning in to the Harbor Church Podcast. I hope that you were enriched, inspired, and blessed by what you heard.